Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now into this place as we open up your word. May he do a mighty work in our hearts and show us the goodness of Jesus Christ, that we would be moved to love and serve him with all that we are. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If you had to guess what the most frequent command in Scripture is, what would you guess? Maybe it would be one of the Ten Commandments, do not lie, do not steal, don't commit adultery. Maybe it would be the command to love one another. Well, if you peeked at my sermon title, you might have guessed that it's actually not even close. By far the most repeated command in Scripture is do not fear, do not be afraid. It's striking that just in our passage from Matthew's gospel this morning, we see this command appear four times in various ways. In verse 19, do not be anxious. Verse 26, have no fear. Verse 28, do not fear. Verse 31, fear not, therefore. Fear is clearly an important issue to God. But I wonder, how do you hear that command, do not fear? What does it sound like? To you. I've learned that some people can hear these words like any other of God's commands. It has this sort of, don't do this, I'm watching you kind of feel to it. Um, for some, every command in the Bible feels like that. It's like an edict coming down from on high from a lawgiver who delights uh, to catch lawbreakers. So the command, do not fear, sometimes for people can produce only more fear and anxiety. Others know that the command, do not fear, is is meant to be comforting, but they just don't find it all that helpful. One of the places that my wife experiences fear is in the front passenger seat of the car, particularly when I'm behind the wheel. Now, I consider myself a fairly uh, safe and attentive driver, But uh, when we are on a family vacation on the interstate, particularly if it's raining or if there's trucks coming alongside of us, I notice my wife beginning to look down, trying to distract herself from her fear. And what do I say? I say, don't worry, don't be afraid. And my words, of course, are essentially meaningless to her. Uh, That's because do not be afraid and do not worry. They can be said so casually, so tritely, that they masquerade as comfort, but really deep down, they're they're self-serving platitudes. My words were less concerned with offering comfort to her and more about managing the environment around me, easing my own discomfort concerning her anxiety. Between the trucks on either side of the car and the rain pouring down or the children in the back seat screaming, the last thing I wanted to deal with was my wife's fearful heart. I wanted to get her fears as quickly off my back as I could so I can focus on other things. I wonder, have you ever heard the command, do not be afraid, like that before? Well, it's really, really important this morning that you hear at least this, that God never speaks those words like that. He never says anything just to get you off his back. His commands are are never self-serving. They're always for your good. If you want to receive any help this morning from Jesus' words about fear to his fearful disciples, it's crucial that we begin with this in mind. 
So as we look at the, the topic of fear in Matthew chapter 10 this morning, I just want to answer two questions this morning. First, how should we approach our fears? And secondly, how does Jesus help us when we are afraid? So first, how should we approach our fears? This is a really important question, actually, because how you think about fear, how you approach fear, will determine how you, in fact, respond to it. And today, in particular, there are a myriad of ways that, that people approach fear and anxiety. One way is what I'll call the rational approach to fear. I'm thinking about a, a child who's worried in the night about monsters in the closet. And even though there's no such thing as monsters, it doesn't really help much to simply state that truth. Or think of a, a husband whose wife is fearful of somebody invading their home and, and murdering her. Well, he responds with, we live in a safe neighborhood. The chances of that happening are, are one in a million. And he puts up locks and alarms and, and security cameras, but somehow all these things only seem to heighten her anxiety. That's because our fears are immune to reason. If the chances of our fears coming true are astronomically small, we know that someone somewhere has to be that one in a million. So why not us? The rational approach to fear. Another approach to fear that is common today is to see fear and worry actually as a virtue. Our anxiety shows just how much we care. And we wear it like a, a badge of honor. And this approach sees fear as just a reality that has to be lived with if you care deeply about something. It's, it's our cross to bear, so to speak. I'm thinking of, of a business owner who lies awake at night thinking of his shareholders, or a, a boss who's always worried about his employees, or a parent who's convinced that it's their job always to worry for their children. This approach to fear sees it as an inviolable fact of life if you actually care about anything meaningful. And it overlooks God's command, and it twists fear into some sort of virtue. Another approach is what uh, I'll call the traditional religious approach to fear. In many traditional religious circles, fear is a, a taboo. God commands his people not to fear, so fear clearly is a bad thing. And whenever some, someone brings up their fear, they're met with some version of, stop it, don't be afraid. But being told just to stop it is about as helpful as me telling you not to think of a pink elephant. Pink elephants are bad. Don't think about pink elephants right now. Well, what are you thinking about, obviously, right now is a pink elephant. How helpful is that? I've known folks who've grown up in these sort of religious communities where their fear was only further proof that they didn't measure up. And so on top of their fear comes shame. And what happens in communities when fear is treated like this? Well, you learn pretty quickly never to speak about your fears, never to speak of your anxieties. And for those with crippling anxiety, it's no wonder that they don't really last long in places like that. They'll instead opt to what I'll call the, the secular approach to fear. And the secular approach to fear, uh, it's seen solely as a neurological issue. For those coming out of traditional communities that saw fear only as a, a spiritual issue, they, they flee to the other end of the spectrum and see it solely as a, a physiological or chemical issue. 
Now, fortunately, many Christians today are giving voice to the fact that fear does have, in fact, a neurological component to it. There is much help to be found in treating our fears and anxieties physically. Medicine is is part of God's common grace. Other treatments like sleep, nutrition, exercise are all a part of caring for the body that God has given us, and all can help reduce fears and anxiety. Treatments like uh, systemic desensitization can help us in overcoming our fears by training our bodies to respond to fear in new ways. But when we begin to treat our, our worries and our fears solely in this kind of way, it's too simplistic. It's too superficial. Why is that? Well, this approach overlooks a really important fact, that there's a personal, relational side to our fears. Our fears, they speak. They say something about us. They say something about the world around us. And we're missing out if we simply reduce our fears purely to this neurological issue, because our fears, they reveal what we truly love. Fear says, something I love is in danger. Anxiety is similar. It says, something I love will be in danger. In both fear and anxiety, they reveal what's truly going on in our hearts, what we love and value. If you love physical comfort, you will fear physical pain. If you love approval from others, you will fear their criticism. If you love your appearance, you will fear gaining weight and looking shabby. If you love being seen as smart, you will fear others' intelligence and looking silly. If you love your health, you will fear illness, disease, and death. Our fears and our anxieties, they reveal what's really going on in our hearts, what we love, but they also reveal our relationship with God. Fear reveals who or what we are trusting in in that moment. Our fears, they tell us that there's, there's danger, either real or perceived, all around us. They strip away any illusion that we are actually in control. They bring us face to face with the spiritual truth that we were never intended to be autonomous, self-reliant human beings. You see, our independence only works when things are actually going really well. So if we're going to have any success in overcoming anxiety, we need to identify what our fears are saying, what they're communicating. For some of this, for some of us this morning, that's going to be really easy. You're all too aware of what your anxieties say. For others, it, it might be more difficult. Your worries might be like background noise. They're, they're vague but deafening. And it's almost impossible to separate each individual fear out from the other. This is where slowing down is really important. Slowing down is important, but fear resists slowing down because its MO is to hectically turn from one thing to the next, finding relief. And when you try to slow down and identify your fears, expect a voice inside to scream, are you crazy? We don't have time to slow down with that sort of threat peering down on us. For others still, you might be here this morning and be thinking, I don't struggle with fear. What is he talking about? Well, that's especially true of of men, I think, because men are told they're not supposed to be afraid or at least not to speak about their fears. And if that's you this morning, let me just change the question a little bit. What do you, do you struggle with anger? You see, anger and fear, they're, they're far closer than you might think. Anger says, I didn't get what I want, so I'm mad. Fear says, I might not get what I want, and I'm afraid. 
Often when you look underneath anger, you will find your fears. If you need a place to start to identify some of your fears, begin with recurring nightmares or phobias. For me, I've had the same recurring nightmare for almost my whole life. I'm running late into a class that I never even signed up for, and before I can get out of the classroom, the professor demands that I sit down and take the exam that I'm I'm late for, and I look down at the paper, and it's all in a language I've never seen before. You ever had that? Or maybe it's running away from somebody that's chasing you. Well, if you don't have nightmares, think about phobias, snakes, needles, heights. One phobia that I have, I have many of them, but one of them happens right here in this church. Uh, It's when I'm sitting down below and actually looking up and see my children in this first row of the balcony. Now, I know y'all are very safe and cared for, and I know that in my heart, but again, fear is irrational, right? I feel physically sick seeing my children even come close to the edge from down below. So, what does all this tell us about how we should approach our fears? It tells us that we shouldn't dismiss or deny or downplay our fears. Instead, we should slow down, listen to them, hear what they're saying about our hearts and about God. And as counterintuitive as it might seem, God actually invites you to try and go on a treasure hunt to find all the fears that you have. And why would he do that? Well, because the more fears that you find, the more blessed you will be when you hear what he has to say to fearful people. God reserves the the sweetest, the most comforting words to fearful people. It's almost like they're his favorite. And that leads us to my next question this morning. How does Jesus help us when we are afraid? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples on their first mission, and he doesn't want them to have any illusions about how this is going to go. They're going to face trouble. He wanted to make it clear to them, and he wants to make it clear to you and me, that being one of his disciples brings more opportunity for fear, not less. Being Jesus' disciple means more danger, more threats. Just look at what he says in verses 16 through 25. Consider all these threats and dangers that Jesus forewarns, either explicitly or implicitly. Fear of physical danger, fear of pain, fear of conflict and speaking the truth, fear of public speaking, fear of betrayal, fear of loss of loved ones, fear of man and the tarnishing of a good reputation. Fear of lack of material provisions. Fear of how you will die. Fear that you will die. Notice these are the same sort of fears that you and I struggle with today. They they cross generations and cultures. Jesus says four times throughout the passage, do not fear. Now, how can he say that? What does he actually suggest we do instead when we're tempted to fear these things? Well, verse 28 actually tells us After all these commands not to fear, Jesus then turns and tells us something that we should fear. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You may face death on this mission, Jesus says, but don't fear death, fear God. You might be wondering, now how in the world is that a help to me? When my wife and I and uh, daughter lived in Philadelphia. We had this lovely apartment that was right near the seminary. It had 
basically everything we wanted. It was in a great location at a price we could afford. It had uh, wonderful neighbors in the apartment building. But it had something else that we weren't super thrilled about. It had mice. And it turns out that there was a mouse infestation right below our apartment in the insulation. And I cannot do mice at all. One night, we woke up to the sound of about a dozen little feet going through the kitchen on top of the stove, in the oven. It was really gross. <clears throat> and they were even knocking over our laundry bin, which was amazing. There were a lot of mice, and it was terrifying. But what if, over the scamper of, of mouse feet, I began to hear a, a low, deep growl? And what if, around the corner, I began to see a giant paw? and then a big yellow mane appear around the corner? What if while there were mice in my kitchen, there was a real live lion in my living room? I guarantee you I will not be worried about those little mice anymore. And that's exactly Jesus' logic here. Jesus knows sometimes the only way to get us over our fears is to dislodge them with an even greater fear. According to Jesus, when you fear the Lord, there's not much else to fear. All our other fears begin to look pedestrian and unimportant. And the Bible is it's filled with many ways that God calls his people to respond to him or to, to love him, to obey him, to honor and trust him. But by far the most frequent response that God calls for is to fear him. And Jesus shows us that's not just true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. And the fear of the Lord, I, I dare say, has become passe today. How often have we heard someone say tongue-in-cheek that they had the fear of God put into them? The fear of the Lord is, is a cliche today to our great peril. The book of Proverbs, which was written by the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, he wrote to his own children and impressed upon them the importance and the blessings of fearing the Lord. The wisest man in history said that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And yet, if you ask parents today to come up with a list of their top five or ten things that they want their children to have in their relationship with God, how many would have the fear of the Lord on that list? Part of the reason for this is because fear of the Lord has fallen uh, in, into hard times because we have a broader meaning than what the Bible has for the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, and it's reverent obedience. It's, it's awe of God. It means that God is your highest joy, your, your strongest source of strength, your, your deepest comfort, the beginning and the end of all of your knowledge. The fear of the Lord means that God's thoughts and His words are the ones that mean the absolute most to you. It means His desire and His will for you hold the most sway over your heart. So the fear of the Lord has much more than just fear to it, but make no mistake, it does have an element of fear to it. Whenever folks in the Bible come into the presence of the living God, they are struck with fear. Isaiah sees God and he cries out, woe is me. The demons come near Jesus and they cry out in terror. The disciples see Jesus' glory and they're filled with fright. Even the Apostle John, who wrote these famous words that there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear, even he said 
uh, when he saw Jesus in a vision in heaven, he fell down in fear as though dead. That's in Revelation chapter 1. There is a fear in the fear of the Lord. And it's why folks like C.S. Lewis chose a lion to be his Christ-like figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. When we fear the Lord rightly, there isn't any more room for faithless fears and worldly anxieties. There's a richness to the fear of the Lord, and if we want the next generation to walk in His ways, then we need to model in word and deed the fear of the Lord. What ought we do if we want to grow in our fear of the Lord? Jesus says two things about God that help us to to fear Him rightly, to grow in our fear of the Lord, and they, they help us overcome our fears. The first thing He says about God is that God is sovereign. If you want to grow in your view of the Lord, you must enlarge your view of who God is. I just came back from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land with many from St. Philip's, and it was a, a wonderful trip. We had a, a great guide who was very knowledgeable. We started in Israel, and then we made our way over to Jordan. And when we got to the, the border, we had to say goodbye to our wonderful guide, and we got off the bus, went through security, and got another guide in Jordan and went on our way. And neither guide could, could go across to the other side. They, that was foreign territory for them. God's sovereignty means that there is no foreign land to God. There is no corner of creation, no corner of our hearts that's beyond his jurisdiction. He rules over everything. He's all-knowing and all-powerful. He's eternal and unchangeable. Did you notice in verse 28 that Jesus wasn't referring to the devil when he's talking about who's in charge of hell? God and Satan, they're not two equal and opposite powers. Satan is only allowed to do what the Lord wills, and he's given a tight leash. This might bring all sorts of questions into your mind, but Jesus' words are clear, and they're a wonderful help to fearful people. How's God's sovereignty a help for fearful people? Well, in our fear, we're looking for someone that can be trusted, someone who actually has the power to help us in our situation. God's sovereignty means that he's never unaware of your plight. He's never caught off guard by the dangers and threats around you. He never says, oh, that's too much for me. You're going to have to go to someone else. God's sovereignty is good news for fearful people because he has infinite resources at his disposal. But God's sovereignty alone is not super helpful by itself. Even though he can help, and he has infinite resources at his disposal, how am I to know that he's going to use those resources for my good? After all, Jesus was telling his followers all these terrible things that were coming their way. Fear tells us rightly that we live in a dangerous world. Well, Jesus points first to God's sovereignty, and then secondly, to God's paternal care. The sparrow was the smallest of the creatures in Jesus' day. It was the most insignificant of them all. Two of them were sold for the tiniest unit of money in his day, Just, just a penny for two of these sparrows. And Jesus says, and yet they can't even fall to the ground. They can't even come to their own death like you're afraid of, apart from the express will of your Father. Notice Jesus shifts from talking about Almighty God 
to your loving Father. God is intimately acquainted with everything about you. You are worth far more than a sparrow to him. One of the things I've noticed in the last couple years of my life is that I start to have these little gray hairs on my head. I don't know if you've ever tried to isolate individual hairs just to, to look at them, but it's impossible to do. Did you get just one? I always get about five or ten of them, something like that. There's so many, and they're so small. And it's amazing the depth of God's concern and care is that each individual hair on your head, he knows. He knows all of you more than you know yourself. There will be many times in our fears and anxieties where we question the loving care of God the Father. And since we live on this side of the cross, we can have a safe place to go where we can see definitively the love of God displayed. Even when the world around us is falling apart, we can know that God is still good by looking at the cross. Dorothy Sayers put it like this. She said, the cross shows us that whatever God is up to in his mysterious, omniscient will, for whatever reason he allows all these things to happen in the world, it can't be that he doesn't love us. And why is that? Because the cross is the proof. He was willing to go through everything you and I go through and more himself. He knows betrayal. He knows rejection. He knows death. Can't be that he's distant or uncaring for you. The cross is the proof that he's not just sovereign, but a loving heavenly father. And the next time you find yourself overcome with fears and anxieties, look to the cross, cry out to the Lord, for he hears and knows the cries of his children. And if you want to grow into the kind of person who can rest easy at night, no matter what sort of threats the next day has in store, if you want to grow in the fear of the Lord, study his word, see what he says truly about himself, and then cry out to him day and night and fight your fears with the fear of the Lord. Amen.